0: Our second reading is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Job and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent word to David and said, I am pregnant. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd, to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. The word of the Lord. Be to God.
1: Five years ago today, Christ Church Vienna started. We started at an elementary school cafetorium with food pictures on the wall, and we've graduated to a saloon being built in our backyard. It is a great thing to celebrate and to stop and think about how we started off with this vision of being a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia, and, and we have birthed the church. We've seen a lot of joys and celebrations and a lot of sorrow and a lot of tears. We've seen people grow in their faith and come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it's always good to stop and be grateful. I must say that as I was preparing for this, I was very um, frustrated that I had designed a sermon series that was going to go through 1 and 2 Samuel and land on David and Bathsheba on the day of our anniversary. (laughs) And then I thought about it as I was reading the passage over and realized that the story ends with the hopeful word of the birth of Solomon. All of this sin gives birth to Solomon, a child of grace. And it is incredibly remarkable and powerful that God would choose Solomon to be the one through whom Jesus would come. And it's the hope of the gospel of grace for all of us. And because it's such a core part of who we are, we're gonna look at the story and see how we can understand the grace of God once again. So the story is a familiar one. If you've seen any movies or flannel graphs or been in Sunday school when you were a little kid, The story is that of David and his taking Bathsheba. So it goes like this. David is sending out those soldiers to war. David avoids going to war, which is what he should have been doing, and instead is standing on the rooftop of his house, the tallest one in Jerusalem. He sees a woman, says, I want her. She's beautiful. So he tells a servant, who is that? And the servant, very wisely, puts a name to the body. Her name is Bathsheba. She's somebody's daughter, David, Eliam's daughter. She's somebody's wife. You know Uriah, the Hittite, the guy who's been fighting with you for years? David is king. He has her come to him and has sex with her. Nobody in the Bible anywhere assigns blame to Bathsheba. It all falls on David, and I think we're supposed to see that in part because david is a first century or a previous before the first century ancient near eastern king who had total authority to do whatever he wanted to anyone any woman was his any life was his he was king and so he took her and she became pregnant sent word to him and now he has to cover up so he thinks okay i've got a plan uriah her husband is off in battle i'll bring him back for a couple of days R and he'll go spend time at home, and he'll think it's his kid. But Uriah is a faithful man and will not go to be with his wife because he knows his fellow soldiers are out suffering and dying for the battle. And so he restrains himself during the time there. David can't convince him to go and visit his home. So David sends him instead with a letter back to the battlefront, telling Joab, the commander, create a suicide mission to attack the fortified city, When the battling is is at its fiercest, pull back so Uriah is killed. David's plot works. Uriah is killed. Now, no one will know. And then David does something absolutely honorable. He takes Bathsheba in to be his wife. And he actually does. In verse 27, it says, you know, as a way of comforting her, he brings her back to himself for her to live with him, to be his wife. You know, everyone in Jerusalem would have had no idea what he was doing. They actually would have thought that was a very honorable thing. Here she is a widow in a world where women had no authority or power. They couldn't create their own money and wealth. And because her husband had died in one of David's battles, David's feeling compassion and he's going to protect her and raise the child as if it were his own. What a great guy, that David. Adultery, murder, covering it up with lies and all the while he looks good doing it we need to remember that what david did sounds crass and horrible to us but as a ancient near eastern king everything he did was within his right everything he did was the very thing that every other king in the surrounding cultures would have done in other words it was culturally normative for him to do these things it's not for us but it was for him. But it is never about what you want or even what the cultural defines because God comes in with his word on the whole thing. Verse 27, the second half, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the interpretation of David's actions. And that's a challenge for us. When we're trying to figure out what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, how we should live our lives. We tend to go on a couple of things, which is because we're individualists and Americans, what I think and what I feel, what works for me, and what is accepted and culturally normative in our our society. What everyone knows and agrees with is okay. What I want, what everyone agrees with. But here we read, that what matters is what God says, God's Word. And this goes back to a question we ask here often, who or what has authority? Who or what has authority in your life? It's really a question of what do I value and who do I really worship? What do I value most and what is truly my God will determine how i read what's right and wrong and how to live and that's why it gets down to this this big question that we ask here quite often which is how do you define the word sin most people think of christian view of sin has to do with keeping rules being morally good or not that it's about vices and morality and ethics The Bible is at pains time and again, and Christianity in particular, to underscore that it's not about that. Sin is fundamentally rejecting God by choosing to be your own savior and acting as your own Lord. And that's exactly what David does in this story. We see it in this word, send. If you had a Bible and you could read through it, you would find that about nine, ten times, the word send is used in this chapter. David sends Joab into battle and doesn't go. David sends for a messenger to come and tell him who this woman is. David sends another messenger to go and bring Bathsheba to him. Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant. David sends word to Joab to bring Uriah back. Uriah is sent by Joab back to David, who then sends Uriah back to the forefront so that Joab can send him into battle so that he will die. And then Joab sends word back to David that Uriah is dead. The word send has to do with who has power and who has authority. And in this story, David does. In the past, if you read through the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel and into the earlier part of 2 Samuel, David is always seeking the Lord before he acts. God, what do you want me to do here? But in this chapter, we don't see him seeking the Lord, we see him sending. He's moving people around like pieces on a chessboard. He's acting like God. And in Jerusalem, he is. Bathsheba, Uriah, her husband, all these servants, they are a commodity to him. Something there for him to use, something there to add value to him. And the challenge for any of us is in any place where we have authority, how will we use that in our home, at work? If you're the the alpha girl in the group, how do you assert your authority? How do you treat other people? Are you acting like God? David is acting like God. Eugene Peterson has a book called Leap Over a Wall that it's about uh, the story of David, and he sums this up. Sin stories tend to sound pretty much alike. Virtually all sins center around the theme of wanting to be God's ourselves, taking charge of our own lives, asserting control over the lives of others. So instead of thinking about sin as the adultery, the murder, and the lying, sin is always against God first. It's rejecting God's law in God's way, and saying, I don't really want a relationship with you, God. And that's why the interpretation that God gives on David's actions centers around the word despise. In chapter 12, verse 9, the word to David is, why have you despised the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And then he gets more personal. You have despised me. David has raped a woman, killed her husband, and lied covering it over all of those things were evil, but his first evil was thinking little of God, which is what despise means. Thinking little of God. Peterson once again says this, the basic foundation of our humanity is God. We are created by, redeemed by, blessed by, loved by God. Sin is the denial or avoidance of that basic foundation of God. If this is true, that means there is no such thing as living agnostically. Agnostic means I don't really know, I'm not really sure. There's no such thing as living agnostically for any of us. Everyone is acting as a believer or an atheist at every moment of every day, in every thought, Word, decision, action. I am either following God or I am rejecting and despising God. Pretty cheerful sermon for a celebration, isn't it? (laughs) But why am I harping on this? Why is all this even important? We will not understand the gospel and we will never see our need of Jesus and we will never know God until we understand this definition of sin and apply it into our lives. You've gotta realize Christianity is not, is not about being a better person. It's not about you getting over your vices. It's about understanding the depth of God's love for you, his grace to you, by recognizing the depth of your sin and rebellion against him at every moment and the great lengths that he went to, even to the cross, to forgive and redeem you of everything. David is acting like God and is steeped in sin and rebellion against God. But then the Lord starts sending. (laughs) David sends, David sends, David sends. Then chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet of God who in chapter 7, which was talked about last week, in chapter 7 gave a prophecy of promise to David. David, the Lord is going to establish an everlasting covenant with you and your family. You will give birth to a son who will become king and Messiah and his kingdom will reign forever. This was the promise that Nathan had given. So whenever Nathan came, David was pretty excited. He always had good news. Well, this time Nathan has a parable, but David isn't quite sure it's a parable because, you see, David is the king, which means when somebody comes into him, it's often because he's sitting as judge. He is the supreme court in Jerusalem in that day and age. Nathan comes with a story of crime. A certain rich man had many flocks, and a certain poor man had one little lamb that he cared for like his own daughter. The rich man had travelers, and as was the case in the ancient and Middle Eastern world, If a traveler came, you were obliged to provide hospitality to kill the calf or the lamb in order to feed them and celebrate. But instead of using one of his many flock, he went and took the one sheep that belonged to the poor man, slaughtered it, and fed his guests. David is absolutely enraged by this story. In verse 5 and 6 of chapter 12, we read, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The man who has done this, he deserves to die. Ooh, he probably regretted saying that. Then comes the most damning and freeing words. The most damning and freeing words ever in Scripture. You are the man. God's word is always personal. The gospel is always God confronting you, dealing with your sin, giving himself to you. Eugene Peterson, last time I promised, said this is the gospel. You are the man. You are the woman. The gospel is never about somebody else. It's always about you, about me. The gospel is never a truth in general. It's always a truth in specific. The gospel is never a commentary on ideas or culture or conditions. It's always about actual persons, actual pain, actual trouble, actual sin. You, me, who you are and what you've done, who I am and what I've done. Nearly every skeptic or agnostic that I have conversations about faith with use deflection questions. What about its theological conundrums, its ethical challenges, its the rationality of faith, but rarely is there earnest, honest seeking? Because if there was, they would realize the gospel gets personal pretty quick. Look, I do believe the gospel is reasonable, plausible, and has total intellectual integrity. I'm glad to discuss that with you. But coming to faith, coming to faith is a lot more like falling in love. I mean, can you imagine, so Sarah and I started dating our last year in college, and I'd known her for a few years, but what if I had first approached her and said very rationally, well, I've known you for about four years. You have good intellectual you know, uh, conversations with me and, and I find you to be uh, a person of character and furthermore, uh, you're not unattractive and therefore I think one plus two plus three plus four equals we should probably start dating. That's not how it happened. <laughs> it's not how it happens. You're sort of quavery at first. You're nervous and excited. Over the course of years, you start adding up the reason, the plausibility building the character case. But at first, you're just crumbled because it's incredibly personal. It's me that's shaken. If you want, if you're here as a a skeptic, as an agnostic, you can actually spend the rest of your life avoiding God. It's not hard to do in America. You can deflect with hypotheticals. You can avoid showing up in a church. You can avoid these sorts of conversations. You can have your defense mechanisms up. But as the disciples found out, if you are earnestly seeking, Jesus will never settle for the impersonal. Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus asks of every single person. Not what do most people say? What's the collective wisdom say? Who do you say that I am? He wants a relationship, he wants you. To David, he says, you are the man. And that's always true for each one of us. God is saying every single day, you are the woman. You are the man that I want. I know your sin. I want you to know your sin. And I want you to know my love for you. It's this wide. Won't you come? Come. David is confronted by truth. Nathan knows the truth. But you know what? David is an ancient Near Eastern king. He could kill Nathan and no one would say a thing. It was his right to do what he did, anyhow. Bathsheba, Uriah, they're his. He's the king. He could do what we do, which is hide or deny our sin, defend or blame shift act as if God has no say on our lives. But instead, David confesses. He comes totally clean. I have sinned against the Lord. He recognizes the starting place. I have sinned against the Lord. What would motivate him to confess when he actually didn't really need to in that culture? It's because he understood the nature of God. What keeps us from confessing is we rarely understand the nature of God. He understood that God is holy and is a judge, and there are standards that he applies to us. He is the authority, but he also understood that God is loving and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness to everyone who will come to him. Look, the consequences of sin continue to fall on David and on his household, but the Lord forgives David and brings redemption by sheer grace. And that's our concluding verses. Where. Verse 24, when we read what happens after all the bad stuff has happened, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. You know what's amazing about this? David had many sons, sons by more legitimate wives. Yeah, multiple wives. And yet it was this son through whom God chose to fulfill his promise in 2 Samuel 7 that a son after him would be born, who would be the Savior, the one to establish his eternal kingdom. Solomon became the greatest king as Israel had ever known, but even he wasn't the ultimate Messiah. He foreshadowed the true son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, was the true son of David, the Messiah God, the eternal king. As Jesus walked the earth, he never despised the Father. And yet, as Isaiah 55 said, we, he was despised and rejected by men. And on the cross, he experienced the rejection of the Father that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus the innocent died for our sin in our place so that any of us who confess our sin and put our trust in him will have eternal life. But again, I ask, why Solomon? Why the son born to David and Bathsheba? Matthew 1.6 is very explicit about it. In Matthew 1.6, we get the description of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on down further. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In the very gospel that's saying Jesus is the one They bring out sin. This is the sort of stuff you don't make up if you're writing a first century historical document trying to convince everyone that the guy that they're talking about is the savior of the world. All of his lineage should be great and magnificent and you hide all the bad stuff. But that's not the gospel. Because Solomon is chosen and David is still chosen not because David is right and good not because it is his, his right as king, but simply because of God's grace and mercy, because God chose Solomon, because God chose David, and God chose to work through the brokenness of a family torn apart by sin upon sin and a man willing to admit it and fall upon the mercies of God. The good news of Solomon being the chosen one Is that it means that your goodness and my goodness aren't what matter? What matters is God's grace. And do you believe it is enough? Martin Luther was fond of saying that we are simultaneously sinners and justified. I want you to think about that. The way that we tend to view David now, if you've been in church circles for a while, is we always talk about his, his bad side. Like, we, we always remember David and Bathsheba. But when you read the prophet Isaiah that cites David a lot, or anywhere in the New Testament, do you know that there's never a negative portrayal of David? David. He is talked about as the prophet of God. His words are are authoritative, like the prophecies of God. He is seen as the Savior of God, by whom the Messiah would come, so much so that the blind man on the road to Jericho, when Jesus passes by, doesn't say, hey, Savior, come and heal me. He says, son of David, heal me, because the word, the name son of David, was associated with all of God's promises for healing and restoration and forgiveness for the nation. I do not think it was because the New Testament writers are trying to gloss over David's bad side. It's rather because they are seeing David from the perspective of God on this side of the cross. What do I mean? God no longer views David as an adulterer or a murderer. He views him as my chosen. If you want to live on the basis of your own goodness and badness, go ahead. It's much, much more freeing to recognize the depth of your sin and the even greater depths of his love. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 7 and 8. When he declares, wretched man that I am, Paul, the saint, the apostle, wretched man that I am, he recognizes the depths of his sin, and yet in the very next sentence he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse one, then we are children of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, and finally, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I are sinners, who are also loved. You may be an adulterer in this room. You may be a thief. You may be a liar. You know your sin. Or you may just be somebody who struggles with a feeling of disgrace because of your struggles with sinfulness. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are completely forgiven. And God sees you as holy and righteous as you ever will be in heaven. You may not feel it, but it is your reality. You are holy and loved by grace. What difference does this make? We talk about being a gospel-driven externally focused, extended family, none of it is going to be possible for us moving forward if we are not rooted and driven by the grace of the gospel. Look, not only are we Americans, we're people who live in D.C., which means we are performance-driven people. We talk about this a bunch here. We are performance-driven people always trying to succeed. We're always comparing and competing. And we do so in whatever area we turn to to find our worth and our identity. We're competing and performing and comparing in our grades, in how, how perfect and awesome our kids are, in our career successes, in the greatness of our vacations and restaurants that we post on Facebook, and how many people just like us. Whatever we value, we will uphold and desire to pursue in order to find our worth and our identity. And the problem is it will drive us into superiority, I'm better than, or at least better than some of them in these areas, or inferiority, especially if you're failing and struggling in areas that you think are really important to you. Only when the gospel of grace fully sets into your heart can you have the sort of humility and confidence that enables you to withstand and love. The gospel says, I am more sinful than I'm willing to admit, and I'm more loved than I dare to imagine. That enables me to be incredibly humble and confident at the same time. And because it's all by grace, not my goodness, my successes should not lead to superiority because it's by grace. And my failures should not lead to despair because I can't lose what God has given me. If we are going to be extended family, externally focused, we need to believe that we are actually sinners, every one of us. Because only then can we have the humility to be open and vulnerable and real. Church should not look like a TV commercial where when you bite into food, nothing falls out and your teeth look perfectly clean even after the bite. You should not walk into here thinking everyone is a model. And maybe they are if they do. You should actually walk in here recognizing I'm a sinner, and this is a room for sinners. It should be an ER, an AA meeting, a messy family. That's what a church should be. When you understand the grace, you can answer this question. How do you react to somebody else's sin? Even hearing the story of David, I'd never do that. I mean, that was horrible stuff he did. Do you ever hear a story in the newspaper, read about a presidential candidate, and say, I'd never do that? That is religion and not the gospel. That's you saying, I am superior, I am better than, and I want to be measured on the basis of my goodness. You may choose to do that, but we're not going to do that here. Do you instead see yourself as the same as everyone else? There is no difference between the convicted criminal and the priest, none in God's eyes. Both are sinners in need of a savior. When you see somebody else's sin, does it grieve you because you have compassion and love for them and want them to know the grace of God too? when you realize it is by grace that you have been loved, fully loved, and you cannot lose that, you actually have the assurance to commit to and trust people, not use them as a commodity, nor avoid them because you want independence and freedom and you don't want to get hurt. You know, psychologists will tell you, (laughs) not as much anymore, but especially in the 80s and 90s, you can only love somebody else if you love yourself. That's sort of missing what the gospel is trying to get at. I'd almost say the gospel is the opposite of that, but not quite. It's you can only love people once you realize how much God loves you. Do it on the basis of your own love for yourself, and that will ebb and flow with your feelings, successes, and failures. But if you're Understanding of yourself is based in God's unfailing love for you. It cannot be taken away or stolen. And you will be filled up and assured and able to love sacrificially, love the unlovable, give to those who have nothing to give in return. Only when your identity and worth are not based on your performance, but on Christ's. Look, people are looking for this. The world is not in need of another religion. This town doesn't even need another church, per se. Instead, it's desperate for freedom from performance, to have hope when struggling and failing. It's desperate for forgiveness and for grace, for relationships filled with humility and honesty and love. This world, this town, needs the gospel. It needs Jesus. And so do we. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a great gift you have given us in the death of your son. Thank you that David did screw up to remind us that we are sinners in need of mercy and grace. Help us to see where we have despised you and chosen our own path. Enable us to hear your word to us. You are the man and to respond with that same repentant trust, I have sinned against the Lord. And then to know that the wide arms of Christ on the cross want to embrace us with love and forgiveness and life. Amen.